Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from American climber and author Ed Webster. This recording of Webster reflecting on risk and resiliency took place in Pennsylvania in October 2012 at the first Leadership Under Fire Making Yourself Hard to Kill conference, which paved the way for future Leadership Under Fire conferences and events. Webster is a record-breaking climber who has achieved and survived the impossible, including in 1988, when he and three partners ascended a new, never-before-attempted route up Mount Everest's most dangerous, isolated side in Tibet. With no Sherpas, no radios, and no oxygen, we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me here. And uh, my reflections on, our, on my years on Everest uh, I was on Everest on three different expeditions, um, are a little bit different than some of the other people. So I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, background before I jump into the heavy-duty, scary climbing that I did. First, I want to start with a quote that maybe describes why people climb mountains, what it is that motivates an individual to undertake uh, a risky activity for no profit, you're not being paid to do this, at least I never have been, you're doing it because you simply love the mountains and you love to climb. And if you climb trees when you were a little kid, you can understand. And this is called the Viking spirit. It comes from some Norwegian climbing friends of mine, and they told me this, and they said, this is why we love the mountains. The Viking spirit, means, and this goes back hundreds of years to the, to the Vikings in Norway and Sweden and Denmark, live your life to the fullest through conscious suffering in nature. Live your life to the fullest through conscious suffering in nature. Meaning that you're putting yourself out there in the natural world to learn from it, to test yourself, and to become a better person and friend. And you can do that outside in the natural world, in the mountains, on the oceans, in the rivers. But I think particularly, well, particularly in the mountains, at least for me. So I never, I never was a sponsored climber. Um, I went on expeditions to Mount Everest that were um, Let's go back here a little in these pictures. The expeditions I went on were sponsored. Here's Everest uh, from, a, from an airplane, actually. Um, but I was never actually sponsored. And uh, I want you also to remember that prior to 1990, the only way you could actually go on a Mount Everest expedition 
was to be invited. There was no such thing as guiding on Everest until the early to mid-1990s. But when I went to Everest in the 1980s, there was no such thing as guiding on Everest. You had to be invited, usually by an older climber who was assembling an expedition and needed a few young, strong guys or gals to come along on the expedition. You had to be a good climber, perhaps slightly well-known. You had to have a good positive attitude. You had to be somebody that these other climbers would want to actually you know, share a tent with out in the middle of Tibet for four months. So you had to have climbing skills and uh, be strong and reliable, but you also had to be a good person and be fun to be with. So there were a lot of different qualities that a climber needed to have, including incredible luck. Almost as though God reached down and said, would you like to come with me to Mount Everest? So you had to be really lucky in addition. And I got invited to go to Everest three times. You want somebody on your team who gives 200% effort every single day. You don't want any slackers. You don't want any prima donnas. You want people who will work hard for the common good of your whole team. You want people that are friendly, who are polite, who are caring for their partners and will take care of their partners. So I was fortunate enough to go to Everest three times. This is one side of Everest in this first photograph in Nepal, the country of Nepal, just north of India in Asia. A year later in uh, 1986 was my second trip. 1985 was the first one. So this is a photograph of Everest from the north side in Tibet. This is the side that the British attempted to climb in the 1920s. If you've heard of Mallory and Irvine, this is their climb. And these first two expeditions led up to my third trip, which in many respects was the ultimate climb on the ultimate mountain. Everest is the only peak on the surface of the earth that rises above 29,000 feet above sea level. It's kind of hard to comprehend what it's like up there near the summit. But I'm going to try to do that here in the next few minutes. So this particular side of Everest is the Kangshang face, the east face in Tibet, also called the forgotten face of Everest. To the present day, this side of Everest has only been climbed four times ever to the summit. And my team in 1988, when I was 32 years old, we did the second ascent. And we did a brand new climb up the left-hand side um, of the peak. I'll just show you where it went. Can't really, can't really do it at this angle. But anyway, we went up kind of the left-hand side of the face, up to that, directly up to that saddle. Everest is on the right, and then up, that, up the left-hand skyline to the summit of Everest. Um, so on this particular climb, uh, I was in what I called the storm years of my youth. The storm years are a wonderful time of life. I'm sure you can all, all of you here today can relate to this. Your early 20s, maybe through your early 30s if you're lucky. Your storm years when you feel absolutely invincible. You could do anything that you want if you put your mind to it and you will live forever. 
Those are the storm years of your life. Make the best of them. I tried to, and I know a lot of you have too. So my goal in 1988 was um, to do a brand new climb up Everest with a small team of friends. We wanted to have a team of six, but we couldn't find two more people to come with us because they all thought it was too dangerous. One of my best friends is a guy named David Brashears. He's the director of the IMAX Everest movie. And I called up David and invited him to come with us. And David simply said, uh, no thanks, Ed. Give me a call if you get home. <laughs> so we, uh, there were four of us. From left to right, that's me, my British partner, Stephen Venables, Rob, uh, Robert Anderson, the leader of the trip from Colorado, the other American besides me, and Paul Tier from Canada on the far right. Um, our goal was to do a brand new climb up Everest, and we realized that this particular climb was so uh, dangerous and difficult. Here is a, uh, a photograph of me leading one of the difficult ice climbing uh, sections. That it would be immoral for us to actually hire Sherpa climbers to come with us. They're really good on snow slopes, but they're not so good on vertical or overhanging ice cliffs. And so we didn't want any Sherpas to get injured or killed, and we, th we felt it would be um, really immoral to hire Sherpas for $20 a day to help us carry our equipment. So we realized when, as we were planning the expedition, that meant no Sherpas. We had to carry all the equipment, and every ounce became critical. We decided not to bring oxygen bottles. We were very idealistic as well, I guess. And also, not to bring radios. Because we were on the most remote side of Everest, who's going to come rescue us? No one. If anything goes wrong, we have to save ourselves. So we don't need a radio. We could leave notes, handwritten notes in the tents for each other to communicate up on the mountain. And um, so, oh, I was going to tell you, this, this is a kind of a fun thing to do. This is looking up Mount Everest, and this next photo is looking straight down the same section. So that kind of gives you an idea why no one had ever been on this particular part of Mount Everest before. You can sort of see why. We were young, we were brave, maybe we were a few other things, but we were living our dream. And then I almost got killed for the first time on this expedition when a huge, five minutes before this photograph was taken, all of those ice blocks were above my head in a gigantic single block of ice the size of a two-car garage. And that block of ice exploded when I was hammering in a, a piton into the ice for uh, safety and uh, collapsed and landed 15 feet from me. And then my partner said, okay, I think it's safe now. Why don't you go over there and I'll take your picture. <laughs> Typical climber humor. So. We kept going. This is me leading out of the crevasse. And then we had to string a rope bridge back and forth across the two sides of this crevasse in order to go back and forth from the lower part of the mountain to the upper part of the mountain. And this is, a ro this is me on the rope bridge called, this is a Tyrolean Traverse, it's called. And we named the uh, crevasse the Jaws of Doom. 
So you're probably thinking, well, man, these guys are really nuts. And yeah, we were, but we were young and brave, and this was our big dream. And to make your dream come true, you can do just about anything. We went back up on the mountain, and we completed our new route on Everest, and we got to the south call of Everest at 26,000 feet, where we joined Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing's route. And this is where our top campsite, Camp 3, was located. We've now entered the death zone, the zone above 26,000 feet above sea level, or 8,000 meters, where a human being can only live for a few days, and normally that's with bottled oxygen. We had no oxygen bottles at all, even in reserve, and no radios, and no one else was there. So it was here that things began to go wrong, as you might expect, perhaps. My Canadian partner, Paul Tier came down with the beginning of cerebral edema, which is high-altitude sickness, which is the worst kind of high-altitude illness, where the fluid between your brain and your skull begins to build up and expand and put pressure on your brain. You can die in a day or two, and the only antidote is to descend to a lower altitude immediately. There were four of us there. Robert and Paul were in the right-hand tent. Stephen and I were in the left-hand tent. Robert came over, he was the leader of our trip, and he said to Stephen and I, you know, Paul's sick, he's gotta go down immediately, I'd like one of you to go down with Paul. So within five, 10 minutes, Paul had gone. He had to descend 9,000 feet of Everest alone, most of it with no ropes. So Paul left. We had 100 mile an hour winds, by the way, as well. The winds stopped that afternoon, the weather became perfect, and Stephen and Robert and I started climbing at 11 o'clock that night. There was no moon, it was pitch dark, it was 40 below. We had headlamps, we had no rope, and we started for the summit with a couple of candy bars and a water bottle, one ice axe apiece, and a camera. An extra hat, extra mittens, extra goggles. We climbed straight up towards the summit of Everest there, up in the clouds, and at five o'clock in the morning, I looked over my shoulder to my left, and I saw one of these mag the most magical sights in the world, the shadow of Mount Everest at dawn from Mount Everest. This amazing sight right at 5 a.m. from 27,000 feet. And I took out a pocket camera and I took that photo. Then I turned around and I saw this absolutely incredible sunrise behind me to the south. I may never be up here again, I thought, I should take a photograph of this. I took off my outer layer of gloves. I had two pairs of gloves on. I took off my overmitts. I took out, I had liner gloves on underneath. I took out my Nikon camera and the metal of the camera froze my fingertips in less than two minutes. I took eight photos as fast as I could and it was too late, just like that. And that's how I lost my fingertips, taking this photo that I later called the frostbite sunrise. But I kept climbing for eight more hours towards the summit. My hands were numb and cold. I did windmills with my hands and clapped them together, tried to warm them up, but nothing worked. But this was the biggest day of my whole life. I kept climbing and climbing higher and higher. I began to pass out. I passed out twice. I also 
I also had a very memorable hallucination. But I'm sorry, you have to read my book to find out about the hallucination. <laughs> but I'll just, um, and I am going to sign books out in the lobby um, this afternoon after we wrap up. If any of you feels like getting a book or a poster, I'll be out there. And um, it was actually a religious hallucination that I had. I'll just tell you that. And so I got to 28,700 feet above sea level with my own lung power. But then I realized if I went 10 feet more, I would die. And I didn't want my life to end near the summit of Everest. I still knew, suddenly I had this moment of clairvoyance and I knew that there were other goals, other dreams that I still had that I wanted to make come true. And I didn't want to be a statistic who died under unknown circumstances near the top of Everest and disappeared after falling down the mountain. I'd already passed out twice, and I, we, like I said, we had no ropes. So one slip, you can see we had no ropes in this photo. So one slip is fatal. You're just gonna fall down the mountain and disappear into oblivion. Well, my partner, Robert Anderson, here's Robert at 28,000 feet without oxygen tanks. Um, Robert and I both turned around, but my partner, Stephen Venables, kept going. And by the way, um, I'll, I'll just, because I know you, this is, if, any, if ever there was a group that could really appreciate this, it's you guys. A lot of people have asked me, what was it like climbing Everest without an oxygen bottle at over 28,000 feet? It was eight breaths, hyperventilating, as hard as you possibly could, followed by two steps and then eight more breaths, and then two steps. We averaged 200 feet an hour for 16 hours to get to the summit, like this. <laughs> two steps. steps for 16 hours like that don't try that you need to acclimatize for a couple of months to be able to do that my partner I'm gonna get all tingly and I'll probably pass out but there's a lot of good people here in case I do so I'm not worried about it I think my arm is starting to go numb okay so um, so my partner Stephen Venables my British partner kept going into the clouds and Stephen made it to the top in a superhuman effort. I don't know how he did it. Alone, late in the day, in a storm, in a whiteout, without oxygen. He spent 15 minutes on the summit. The sun went down that night and all of us were trapped. We had to spend the night on the summit ridge of Everest. Robert and I found an abandoned tent that we slept in, just in our clothing. But Stephen spent the night sitting in a snowbank with no shelter, no food, and no water. He hallucinated, he told me, that he was sitting next to a campfire, which was helpful. He was at over 28,000 feet. He froze his nose, which you can see in this picture. It actually grew back, it took about a year. But Stephen made it, so our team was successful. We congratulated him the next morning when we saw him, when I took this photo. Um, but we were only halfway through, we still had to get down. We got back down to our top camp. 
I didn't know a person could do this. Perhaps some of you have. Have you ever been so tired that you have slept for 24 hours? Have you ever slept for a whole day? I did on Everest. When I woke up at our top campsite after the summit climb, a whole day had elapsed. And I looked at Stephen and Robert and I said, we're gonna die up here. We have to go. We have to leave right now. We've gotta get going. Come on, let's go. And Stephen crawled out of the tent and I said, Stephen, you look like you might be dead. Could you please wave? And this was the last photograph that I took. I started leading my friends down the mountain. We wanted to find out what had happened to Paul. We also had a doctor named Mimi, another friend of ours named Joe, and a, a Sherpa and a Tibetan uh, cook and cook boy. So there were f six other people down below, um, or five other people down below. So I started down. I told Robert and Stephen, don't, don't try to sit or glissade down the snow. It's too dangerous. But they did anyway, and they dropped their ice axes when they started cartwheeling, and they lost their ice axes. And then I, I didn't drop my ice axe. In fact, it's out in the lobby. I'll show it to you afterwards. I brought it along. Then I said there was some crevasses. Where's the rope? There are crevasses here. We should be roped together. Oh, there's the rope sitting in the snow right below Stephen. Robert and Stephen forgot to pick up the rope, so it got left behind by mistake. So we had to do this entire section of the mountain from that saddle straight down all that snow with, oh, and did I tell you? We also had run out of food. So we had no food, no rope, only one ice axe between the three of us and one ski pole, one adjustable ski pole. And I led the way down for three and a half days without any food. Even though my frostbite was worse than my partner's, I seemed to possess a slightly greater will to live. And I kept saying, I don't want my life to end like this. I don't want my life to end here. There's so much more that I have to do. I'm never gonna do something so stupid again in the rest of my life. <laughs> I half was joking, but I sort of meant it at the time. We kept going down, down, and I, um, the one technique that I developed on Everest, which, and other climbs I've done, that I thought could be useful for you, I just have a few more minutes to go, is um, when you're in a dangerous situation, always make it a habit of turning around and making a very strong mental snapshot of your landmarks. Because when you come back through that burning building or through this incredibly dangerous terrain, if you're a soldier, you need to know what the terrain looks like backwards, going back where you have come from. And so always turn around, get into that a reflex of doing that. Turn around, make this very clear image in your, in your head of what the surroundings look like and the landmarks and say it out loud to yourself this cliff is there, and that snow slope is there, or this door is there, and this, you know, broken whatever, this staircase is over here on the right. That's what saved our lives. We went down Everest in a whiteout like this for three and a half days, and the, the rope, this picture was taken on the way up, so that rope actually wasn't there. Um, and that's a marker wand of bamboo and duct tape. 
And so finally, when we got down, four days after the summit, this is what I looked like. And this picture kind of sums it up in a nutshell, what we had been through. A combination of high altitude. This is me. This is what I call the exorcist photo. Um, frostbite. And my hands were shredded because my frostbite blisters were, broke, were ripped apart by the ice-covered ropes that we had to rappel down. And that's why my frostbite was even worse. We also lost a lot of weight. This is Stephen Venables after he took a bath at base camp. And um, you can see his nose is black from frostbite. And uh, the important thing about this picture, though, is I want you to imagine that this human being had stood alone on the summit of Everest five days earlier with nothing, no food, no oxygen, no radios, only the human will to succeed and accomplish a goal. We all made it down. Here's our team halfway through the climb. The real reason that we got down is because we had open communications and respect for each other. We treated each other like equals all the time. We always talked out our differences. We became the best of friends, and we're still friends to this day, 25 years later. We're still the smallest team that ever pioneered one of the major new routes up Mount Everest. Thank you for letting me share my story with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership